If you have your Bible, please turn in it to Romans chapter 9 as we keep going through the book of Romans together. We'll be today in Romans 9 verses 14 through 18. And you might be following along on the outline on the back of your bulletin. I hope you'll do that. I hope that that helps a little bit. And uh, just so you know, uh, I decided to change the title of the sermon today. Drastic, drastic change from God's power in election to this, God's justice in election. So there you go. And I think we'll see that together, that that is the theme of what's going on in these verses, is God's justice in election. Let's read this together, and I'm going to go back to verse 10, just for a little bit of context, and we'll read through verse 18. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 945 in the Black Bible on the end of each pew. Hope you'll turn there, and if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then just take that one home. It's our gift to you. So, starting in verse 10 of Romans 9, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we come to today's passage. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. As we get into this, I I want to just begin with some verses from Isaiah chapter 55. You've probably heard these verses before, but we need to hear them right now. Isaiah 55, verse 9, or excuse me, where are we? Verse 8, he says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We're getting into some things here and have been for a week or two in things that are hard to comprehend. Things where we, we in, in a healthy way, do want to dive deep and we do want to try our best to wrap our minds around these truths. And yet at the same time, we're also getting right to the edge of the distinction between what it is that God has revealed and what it is that God has not revealed. God told us back in Deuteronomy that the things that he has, has, or the secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things that we just can't know. But he told us that the things that are revealed are for us and for our children forever. And so as we get into something like the doctrine of election, the relationship between human will and God's will, the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, we have to realize that there are some ways that we will never be able to completely wrap our minds around this. There are God's thoughts 
that are higher than our thoughts. There are God's ways that are higher than our ways. And yet, that's not a reason to just back up and say, okay, let's not think about it, because it is right here. It is right here where it says to us, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And he wants us to know this, and he wants us and our children to have this forever. And so we have that right there side by side. There are these high and lofty things and even things about this passage that will be hard to wrap our minds around, and yet it's right here, and it's here for our good, and it's here for God's glory. Now, as we come to this passage, I want to remind you that this, this part of Romans, Romans chapter 9 through 11, is all dealing with this question that's brought up in the very beginning of Romans 9 of why is it that so many of the Jewish people have not embraced the Jewish Messiah? Why is it that so many among ethnic Israel have not embraced the true Israel whose name is Jesus, the true son that was called out of Egypt, according to the book of Matthew? Why is that? And essentially, when we got to the passage that we were in last time, the answer that, that the Bible gives here is that the reason is God's choice, God's election, that not all are Israel but that there is an Israel within Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's the children of the promise, as he's going to say in Romans 11, that there is a chosen remnant, a remnant chosen by grace, that that the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. That's what he's going to say. That's kind of the context of what's going on here, is this is the ultimate answer of why there is a spiritual Israel within ethnic Israel. Why is it that so many have not received Christ within that people is because God has chosen some and has hardened others. That's the reason he gives. He's going to go on, and and within these chapters, within chapter 9 and 10 and 11, he's going to point out that God in his sovereign choice has also chosen to bring in Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation. This, by the way, is not totally new in the New Testament. It's just kind of broken wide open in the New Testament. But, but God is bringing in to spiritual Israel, the Israel of God, as he puts it in Galatians. He's bringing in not only those who are believing from within the Jewish people, but also those who are believing from within the Gentiles to make us one, to graft us together into one olive tree, to be those, those branches that are part of the vine that is Christ. So he's bringing us all together. But right now, he's dealing with this issue, this question of election. He's, he's already laid it out, and he said, here's the reason, here's the answer. It's because God has chosen some and has not chosen others. Some are among the elect, and some are among the reprobate. Now, when that doctrine comes up, and I mentioned this last time, there are among human hearts, still marred with sin even if they are Christians, there are objections that start to well up in many, many human hearts to that doctrine of God choosing some and not others. And so this week and next week, we're going to deal with the two big hypothetical objections that Paul anticipates, and that's where we are. 
This is a little bit of an aside. He's, he's kind of taking a, a, a little bit of a break for this paragraph and the next paragraph in Romans 9 uh, about just the, the question of Israel. And, and he's dealing with, hey, I know that because I told you that it's election, I know that there's going to be some people in the church at Rome and other places that read this letter who are going to come up with reasons why they think that can't be the case. They're, they're, he's he's, he's kind of saying here, it's because of election, and because I said it's because of election, I've heard what comes in those conversations. I know that people charge God with wrongdoing. I know that people say, well, if God's the one who's sovereign, then how can man be responsible for anything? Those are the two big things he's going to bring up, but that's where he brings us today. He says, we need to pause right here, and we need to deal with the objections that naturally bubble up in the human heart to the idea that God is sovereign over man's salvation. And the first, the first normal objection that comes up, that he brings up in Romans 9.14 is this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? That's a natural charge that comes up about election. Another way that you could put it is, that sure doesn't sound fair. Anybody in here have kids? Have you ever heard your kids say that that's not fair? Well, sometimes they're right. <laughs> We're not perfect, right? But we also know that it probably wouldn't be a very good way to parent to always give them what is fair because then we would have a parenting relationship with them that is completely law and no grace. If we were only giving them what is strictly fair, we would be doling out punishments all day, nonstop, without ever pausing to say, let's seek some forgiveness and some restoration and some grace here together, right? So that's kind of where Paul I should say, where the Holy Spirit through Paul is going to take us today. When, when we have this idea that comes up, well, God must not be fair if he is the one who decides who gets saved and who doesn't. We need to back up and say, wait a second, what would be fair? Do you really want what's fair? We'd all be doomed. <laughs> In fact, we wouldn't even be here right now. We would have already been dropped down into the fire. But God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and I am so grateful for that. He has mercy. That charge of God not being just, it usually comes up in one of two ways to those who are objecting to the doctrine of election. One is, is this idea that everybody deserves to be chosen. Now, they might not quite put it that way, but that's kind of the gist of it, is, it, is that God is not fair if he does not give salvation to everyone. And in fact, there are a couple of, of uh, famous commentators on Romans uh, from the mid-20th century who, when they get to this passage, they just kind of blatantly come out and say, Paul is totally wrong here. <laughs> it's, it's a bizarre thing. They come out and they say, this couldn't be right. And they give their reasons why they think that everyone actually will be saved. That's a doctrine called universalism. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. You may have driven by a Unitarian Universalist church before, and that's kind of, it's not Christianity, by the way. Um, it's a different religion. 
that's Unitarian as opposed to Trinitarian. It's a different God, okay? But the universalism part is the idea that God, through the blood of Jesus, will forgive everyone's sins and bring everyone to heaven. Now, that's kind of the, the idea. That's, it's almost like what, what a sinful man would think that God is obliged for God to do for us. Like, you sent your son to die. Why don't you just give that to everybody? Why don't you just save everybody? And so that's one of the ways that that God is charged with injustice. God, you ought to do this for me. You ought to do this for him. You ought to do this for everyone. But then there's another charge of injustice. That, that comes up a lot of times. It's that God is unjust to force his salvation on someone. Now, force his salvation, that's the way that it would be put by those who, who would bring this charge. Usually the way that you hear it put is something like, don't you believe that God is a gentleman? Wouldn't, would a gentleman try to force someone to love him who, who doesn't want to be loved? As though, as though God could be charged with this, this kind of heinous act, forcing his love on someone. When in fact, what God does is he causes us to love because he first loved us. Isn't that neat? But that charge, it comes up if you're you know, around Christian friends and, and these kinds of issues come up. It's normal for, for those of us who affirm what really is plain in Romans 9, to, to have other well-meaning Christians bring these charges, how could God be fair if this is the case? Is God forcing people who don't want to go to heaven to go to heaven? And let me just answer that the way that Paul answers that right here. By no means. By no means. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. No way, no how. It is not the case. You cannot charge God with being unjust. As it says in the Old Testament, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He only and always does what is right. And when we think that we have examples of how God has done what is wrong, we will one day be proven wrong. God will demonstrate for all eternity his justice in all things, including his decision of whom he will save and whom he will damn. All of these things will be shown to be right. When he says, by no means, it's, it reminds us of some of the previous places in Romans where he said this. Back in Romans 6.1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we? By no means. Romans 6.15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Are we? By no means. Absolutely not. What about Romans 7.7? 7? What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Is the law sin? By no means. And we see here when he brings up the doctrine of election. Is God unjust? Is there something wrong with God for doing this? By no means. Absolutely not. 
And he's going to go on and he's going to explain in verses 15 through 18 how this is the case. That God is not unjust. That God is right in his purpose, his eternal purpose of election. It says in verse 15, starting uh, with this word to Moses, that God is going to have his right to have mercy on sinners. It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's the end of the passage that that Mike read for us this morning out of Exodus chapter 33, where Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, the great I am. And here's what he connects to his name, his being his character, he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God says, this is in my very character. He expresses that character in other places where he explains the, 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 the definition of who he is. That he is a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the sin of thousands, but who will by no means clear the guilty. I know I've told you this before, but this is one of these central truths that you need to have straight in your head. There seems to be a contradiction in what God says about himself in that statement. That he forgives sins and that he will by no means clear the guilty. How is that possible? How is that possible? The answer is the cross. When it says in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. When that's quoted in Romans 9, as I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. When we see that truth about God, we need to think about Jesus pouring out his blood on the cross. When God has mercy, and when I I say mercy here, I'm not just talking about the kind of mercy that is, um, you know, doesn't quite give you as much punishment as you deserve. In this context, the way that he's using it, this mercy is talking about full mercy, full, complete pardon, the giving of salvation and eternal life. The kind of compassion that he's talking about is not just, oh, I feel bad for you, but this is the kind of compassion that moves him to action and to salvation and to the full and free riches of his grace to to give us eternal life. Here's what I'm, I'm saying. When we see that, we have to remember that this is still the God who will by no means clear the guilty. How is it possible? It's because my guilt was put on the person of Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And he was crushed for my iniquities. It's by his stripes that I am healed. When he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, we have to remember this is not just a willy-nilly God just kind of deciding, oh, I'll throw my mercy over here, I'll throw my mercy over there. This came by the death of his Son. 
And when human beings who were lost in their sin would look at God and would say, but you were obligated to put my sin on your son. No, he's not. He's not. But by his grace, he has put my sin on his son. And he offers that salvation and that mercy. And he says, come to me. But ultimately, it's going to be those that he has mercy upon who come to him. It's going to be all that the Father has given to Christ that will come to him, as it says in John 6. And he will never cast them out. He has the choice to show mercy to some, and it requires the cross. Just remember this. You do not deserve grace. I don't deserve grace. If grace were deserved... As it says in Romans 11, it would no longer be grace. If God were obligated to give grace, it wouldn't be grace. God is the one who can give grace, who can show mercy, and he is not required to give it to any of us. The amazing thing is that he has chosen to give it to some of us. And not just some of us, but a vast multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's amazing. It says next, after it says that he has this choice to show mercy to whom he will show mercy, that it doesn't depend on human will or exertion. Look at verse 16. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, when he says human will or exertion, there's a footnote that says uh, that, that it says uh, more literally not of him who wills or runs. There might be different translations of that because it's kind of a, uh, a hard thing to get exactly right. But the, the 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 general idea here is that there is human will and there is human works. And when you put those things together here, he's really talking about everything that a human being has to offer to God, whether it comes from our own heart in terms of what we want and how our hearts would be turned to this thing or to that thing or to God or not to God, has to do with what we would do and how we would exert ourselves and what kind of religion we would would pursue and, and carry out and how zealously we would do it. All of the things that you think of, of what it is that, that, that God ought to have for me. It says right here, your salvation does not depend ultimately on those things. What he's saying here is he's saying, man, humanity, put yourself low and put God high. It depends ultimately on God. He says first that it doesn't depend on human will, and this is the, this is the main thing that so many will bring up an objection to the doctrine of election. They'll say, but what about free will? What about free will? Now, I've told you before that in my younger years, I didn't, I didn't believe this doctrine of election stuff. It wasn't like I had really thought through it all that thoroughly. But here, here's what I would do as a teenager especially. I knew that I should be reading my Bible. I would get out my Bible, and I would read something like Ephesians chapter 1, 
And I would see what it said about God's choosing and about predestination and, and those sorts of things. And, and I would say, I don't really understand what this means, but I know that when I believed in Jesus, that I freely chose him. And so therefore, I know that free will has to be the real reason why somebody is saved. That was kind of my thought process. And I would guess that maybe you've had that thought process before. Or maybe you've come across those who tell you that this, this is what it is. You know, how could God violate free will? This idea that free will must be the thing that's over it all. Guys, don't make free will an idol. Put it in the place where God puts it. It depends not on human will or exertion. Now let me tell you the reality. When I came to faith in Christ, or you, if you're a believer, when you came to faith in Christ, you did come by your free will. But here's the difference. God gave you that free will. God changed your will. Your will was against God until he did something about it. Let me just put it this way. We love because he first loved us. You see that? The reason you have willed to love God in Jesus Christ is because he first willed to love you in Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, the, 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 the way that I had reasoned it in my own head was, well, here is my experience, and so I must interpret the Scripture based on my experience. We have to stop doing that where we're tempted to do that. We have to interpret our experience based on the Scripture. The, the, the Scripture tells us, here is what was really going on. Here is how your heart changed. It's not because of something in you. It's because of something in God that this happened, if you've come to faith in Christ. It does not depend on human will. At this point, I do want to bring up a few verses of Scripture. Those who, who try to, to use the Bible to deny the doctrine of election will often bring up certain verses that they say, well, this shows that ultimately it is about human will. Ultimately, it is free will that brings someone to Christ and one of the main verses that will get brought up in that context is John 3.16. You guys have heard me quote John 3.16 enough to know that I'm not against John 3.16. I love John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now here is the, the interpretation that those who use this verse against the doctrine of election would say. They would say, look here, God loved the entire sinful world and every sinner in it so much that he gave his only son to die for every sin of every sinner of all time so that then he could offer that death and that salvation to everyone and then see whoever it would be that would believe in him and whoever would then freely choose to believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the interpretation that you get from those who say, well, this shows you that the doctrine of election is not true. The, the problem with that is that that's not what the verse means. And if you want to know for sure that that's not what the verse means, just go read the beginning of the chapter, John 3. 
Because you know what it says is, is those who will believe in him, those who have been born of the Spirit, you must be born again. He's saying the Holy Spirit must come and do a miraculous work to change your heart in order that you may believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. When he says, for God so loved the world, this is just a thing to know. We, we usually hear that and we think so much. The word so there, I think it ought to be translated differently, but it's the word, it, it means this is how, thusly. This is the way in which God has loved the world. He gave his only son. And that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's two truths there. One is that he really does freely offer Christ to the world. He really does say, all who are weak and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. There really is a free offer of the gospel. But we know from other places in Scripture that whoever believes in him is not just whoever might have that will in themselves. It's those that God makes to be born again. It's those who are born of the Spirit. It's those that God effectually calls and gives the gift of repentance, gives the gift of faith through that preaching of the gospel. There's another verse in Revelation 22:17 that's popular to be brought up in defense of free will as the ultimate determination of who will be saved. It says, and whosoever will... Let him take the water of life freely. And let me just say to that verse, amen. <laughs> amen. Go and preach that. That's the free offer of the gospel. And we ought to be freely offering the gospel because Jesus freely offers the gospel. But when it says whosoever will, here's, here's the reality. No one will unless God does a miraculous work in their hearts. How do we know that? Well, back in the book of Romans, Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Here's, here's, the, here's the truth that will put man in his place and God exalted high. Is that if salvation depended on free will, none of us would be saved. All of us would freely will against God. We were born in sin. The depravity of sin that entered into humanity in the Garden of Eden is a sin that didn't just make it so that we had strong temptations to do what was wrong and probably will. It's a sin that's deep to our core and hasn't just broken our actions. It's broken our wills. The depravity of sin is something that goes all the way down to the human will so that no one is righteous and no one seeks for God. That, that, that is the depth of human depravity to where if, if we were left up to our own wills, we would all be condemned. But praise God, He has mercy on whom He has mercy. Thank God for that. He has compassion on whom he will have compassion. It also says here that it doesn't depend on human exertion, on human exertion. 
Now, this is something that's been very, very clearly taught, especially in the early chapters of the book of Romans. I'll just remind you of Romans chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let me just make this very clear. There is nothing that you can do for God that's going to impress God. There's nothing that you can do for God that's going to add something to God that he didn't have before you did it. He already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You can come and bring him every offering that you have ever had or ever could have. You can do every good work that could ever be done. You could preach in every place that there could ever be preaching. You could do anything, and yet you wouldn't add an ounce to who God is or what God has or the reality of God's glory that was before the creation of the world and will be into eternity future. We can't add to God by our works. We can't strike up a bargain with God and say, I will exert this much and therefore you are indebted to reward me. That's not how it works. God gives salvation freely by faith alone and not by works It depends not on human will or exertion. And at this point, I just want to remind you who it is that the Holy Spirit is using to write Romans 9 to us. This is the Apostle Paul, who before he was known by as the word Paul, he had the same name, but it was pronounced in the Hebrew way, which is Saul. And Saul was very zealous for what he thought was God's way. He was so zealous that he became a persecutor of the church. He was standing there as the very first Christian martyr, whose name was Stephen, one of the first seven deacons of the church of Jerusalem, as he was preaching the gospel. And as at the end of his presentation of the gospel, as those who were standing around decided that Stephen now must be stoned to death for the blasphemy that he has said... Paul was there, and it says that what he did is he held the coats of the people who picked up stones. He wanted to make sure that nothing got in the way of how strong their arm was and throwing those rocks at Stephen's skull as he, as he was pummeled to death. He, he is the one who, out of a supposed zeal for God, out, out of a will that was completely against Christ and out of works that he thought that he was giving to God, was on his way to a city called Damascus so that he could drag off Christians and have them put in prison and possibly executed because they were saying that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the guy that Jesus met on that road. His will was against Christ. His works... He thought were for God, but they were against God. He was trying to do every bit of will and exertion that he could to earn his salvation, but it was completely wrong. He was walking as an enemy of Christ, but Jesus intervened. And he met him on that road to Damascus, and he shone as a bright light around him, so bright that Paul was blinded afterward. And he fell down, and Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul got brought into the town, 
couldn't do any of the persecution that he had hoped to do and was lying there in bed contemplating these things and God sent a man named Ananias to explain it to him and say, come to Christ. And he came to Christ and these scales fell off of his eyes and he could see and he had been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. You you see what's going on there? Was God waiting around for Paul to freely choose him? God was powerfully intervening to change Paul's heart. Was God sitting around saying, I'm just going to see if he can offer me enough zealous service. If his human will and human exertion, maybe he'll get there one day. Absolutely not. Paul was careening toward hell and didn't even know it. And God stepped in and did something about it. If anybody can attest to this truth that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, it's Paul. He knows this. And you know what, believer? This is the case for you. If your conversion to Christ was not dramatic like Paul's, it's still God who did it. If you were converted to faith in Christ as a child in a Christian home where you were so young that you don't even really remember how or when it happened, but you look at your heart and you know that you are repentant of your sin and that you have faith in Jesus, and you say, boy, I wish that I had a powerful conversion story like Paul's, you need to know this. It is still God who has powerfully done it. And there is nothing that can be attributed to your family lineage Nothing that can be attributed to your will, nothing that can be attributed to your work. It is 100% a miraculous, gracious work of God. It's all God. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then he goes on. Let me just tell you this. I'm, I'm going to, I'm skipping a little bit, but. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'll just clear this up. Am I saying, or is Paul saying, that those who have faith in Christ don't have a will to follow Christ, or that they don't do anything for Jesus? No, that's not what he's saying. I mean, you put this together with the rest of the book of Romans and so much else in Scripture, and you know those who, who, who are God's people, redeemed, born again, yes, we freely will to follow him. But do you know why that is? This is, the, this is the key point here. It's not because we first willed it and then obligated him to do something for us. It's because he first did it for us. It says when we will... And when we work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you. If you have a will that has been turned to Christ to love him from the heart, it's because God has worked that in you. If you are zealously working in your life for the glory of God, 
in doing your job well for the glory of God, in raising your family well for the glory of God, in stewarding your finances well for the glory of God, in serving your church well for the glory of God, in looking for opportunities to do evangelism for the glory of God. You could go down so, so many ways that you can work for the glory of God, but in all of those things, it's not, hey, I'm going to offer this to God and see what he'll do for me. It's God has done a work of grace And as a result of his work of grace, your salvation is being worked out with fear and trembling, and you are doing those works. It it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we praise God for that. We praise God for that. That's the difference here. It's not saying you don't have to will and you don't have to work. It's saying if you will and work for God, it's because God did it first. It's because God chose you. We praise God. Praise God. It's also God's right, verses 17 and 18, not just to show mercy on sinners, it's also his right to harden sinners. Look what it says, verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I want to note something in verse 17 that's not the point of this passage, but that's present in this passage, that's assumed in this passage, that I want to bring out and make clear to you, which is that right here, Romans 9.17 is saying that Scripture is the Word of God. I don't know if you caught that. He says, the Scripture says to Pharaoh, And then he says, here's what God said to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. You catching that? This is the view of Scripture that Scripture has of Scripture, is that Scripture is the Word of God. It's the view that's expressed in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's saying the Scripture is the Word of God. The Old Testament Scripture is the Word of God. And also, interestingly enough, in that same book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 16, he says that in Paul's letters, there are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Do you hear that? Scripture calls Scripture the Word of God, and Peter's Scripture calls Paul's Scripture Scripture. By the way, Paul's Scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18 calls Luke's Scripture Scripture. And you just see this all over the place, and I just want to use this as an opportunity to affirm to you that Scripture is the Word of God, and you either take all of it as the Word of God as Scripture, or you don't. When you start to say to yourself, well, we're going we're gonna to jettison this little part and not count this as the Word of God, or the gist of it is generally right, but, but they probably got some things wrong along the way. When you start to do that, you're just making your own word the authoritative word. You're making your own brain the final source of authority. But what the Scripture's view of itself is, and what the true view of Scripture is, 
is that this is the Word of God, right? So that's my side note. Let's look at what the Scripture says. Let's look at what God says in the Scripture to Pharaoh. He says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It tells us, first of all, when there is a leader who has been raised up, it's God who raised them up. Christians love to announce that truth when there's a leader in power that they like. But we wouldn't have liked Pharaoh. It says, when Pharaoh was in place, God had raised him up. Not to show that Pharaoh was good, but for very different purposes. Jesus says the same thing about Pilate. That Pilate, he says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you by my father. And so every time there is a leader that's raised up, we have to trust that God in his providence has done that. And it could be for the mercy of the people who are being led by that leader, or it could be for the trials and tribulations of the people who are being led by that leader. And God has his purposes in all of these things. God was over Pharaoh. Pharaoh was worshipped as God within Egypt. But God says to him, no, you're only here because I put you there. And let me tell you why I put you there. He says, for this purpose I have raised you up, first of all, in order that I might show my power in you. What he's talking about when he says that I might show my power in you, he's saying, so that I will powerfully destroy you. He says in Exodus 14, 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. That's go into the Red Sea after the Israelites. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. He says, I raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart so that I would send him into the Red Sea and show that I am God and there is no other. He also says it's not just to show his power, his omnipotence, his justice in all these things. He also says that it's so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is one of the results of what God did with Pharaoh, is that people heard about it. It says in Exodus 15, the peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And then you see the example of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who was a priest of Midian. He was a pagan priest, but he came and met the people in the desert and said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. God accomplished his purposes to demonstrate his power and so that his name would be proclaimed as glorious in all the earth. And by extension, the Scripture is telling us here that even where God has chosen not to save someone, even when that is very difficult for us to wrap our minds around in certain ways, that we will one day proclaim 
the glory of God in all of this. That God has not done what is unjust, but what is just. That God will make his name great in all the earth. I'm going to save a little bit of what could be said about that, really most of what could be said about that for next week, because that's really the subject of the next paragraph that comes after this one, is what is God doing when he does not elect someone, but makes them part of his reprobate instead? And the answer is it's all for his glory. It's his glory when he shows mercy to sinners, and it's his glory when he shows justice to sinners as well. But verse 18, he says, So then it has, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you connect verse 18 back to verse 16, and you notice that word will, it depends not on human will, but verse 18, whomever he wills. Do you know who has the real free will here? God God has free will. The wills that we exercise, the wills that we are actually responsible for our sin in, everything that we do, it is within the bounds of God's sovereignty, of God's free will, every bit of it. And within that will, God is able in his full justice, in his full glory, without ever possibly being accused of sin is able to say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and he hardens whomever he wills. What does that mean to harden? The New Testament scholar named Douglas Moo says that hardness of heart is a condition of being unreceptive and disobedient to God's word. That's what it looks like, being unreceptive to God's word and being disobedient to God's word. One of the things that that means is that when a person's heart is hardened, they probably don't care that their heart is hardened. They don't particularly care that much about what God's word says or about this whole concept of what we Christians would would debate about here or anything like that. They just say, I don't need that. It's a hard heart. A person with a hard heart has very little interest in hearing what God has to say in his word. And that person with a hard heart would have even less interest in personally submitting themselves in obedience to what God says in his word. It just kind of reminds me of of the safety announcements that you hear on an airplane. I remember the first time uh, that I rode on a commercial airplane. The whole experience was new to me. I was a kid, and I was just paying very careful attention to everything. And I paid very careful attention to, uh, to the announcement about safety at the beginning. You know, here's exactly what you do if these things pop down from the ceiling, and, and if there's a water landing, here's what you do. And boy, I, I, was, I was listening. And I pulled out that card from the seat back pocket that had all the safety things, and I was studying, and I was like, here's, okay, where do I go? Where's my exit? What do I do if those, if those uh, slides pop out of the side? All that kind of stuff. But over time, as I got used to being on an airplane, and I'm not somebody who's on an airplane all the time, but enough that I kind of just don't pay attention to those sorts of things anymore. Right? When they start doing the safety announcement, I just I think to myself, boy, I just wish I had earplugs right now. And, and occasionally I do pull out the, the 
safety card, but the only reason I pull it out anymore is because it says on there which model of airplane you're on, and sometimes I'm just kind of curious about that. But as far as those things, like, I just don't care. I don't want to hear. It doesn't really particularly matter to me anymore. That's the kind of attitude that someone has as their heart is hardened toward God when they come to his word. They start to think, okay, I've heard this before. I know about this stuff. I know what this is going to say. Usually they think it's going to tell you, be good, don't be bad. I know about being good. I know about being bad. I'm all right. And their heart is hard. Sometimes they, they never heard, they never cared, and yet God would just leave them to harden in the deceitfulness of sin rather than to care anything at all about the ways that God would reveal himself to them in his word. A couple of things to know. However this hardening happens, it says he hardens whomever he wills, it happens in a way where God cannot be accused of being the author of sin, and he can't be accused of wrongdoing. James 1 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt, uh, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And it's put in Romans 1.24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. In 1.28, God did not, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and so God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So there's a way in which this is kind of hands off, God just letting hard hearts get harder. There's also these words that are spoken about Pharaoh throughout Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It does say God hardened his heart, and it also says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so it's not as though man can say, I don't have anything to do with my hard heart. God hardened my heart. It's his fault. No. If your heart is hard, it's your fault. But at the same time, it does say, God hardens whomever he wills. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, Exodus 10, 20, and a number, probably 10, 15 other places, depending on how you count it in those early chapters of Exodus, that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, what we're not doing, we, we're, if we say God is totally hands-off, then we're not acknowledging what this says about he hardens whom he wills. But a lot of times, and, and this is where it comes up, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We would want to know, how is this the case? How does it fit together that man is responsible for his own hard heart and God hardens hearts? Here's what Robert Haldane said, great 19th century theologian. He said, to attempt to show philosophically exactly how it fits together that a person hardens his own heart and that God hardens that person's heart. He says it is to attempt to fathom infinity. We receive it not because we can explain how it is true, but because we know that God cannot lie. The Scriptures testify to the fact. The fact then must be received as truth. But guys, here is the truth. God could leave you to the hardness of your heart. He could harden your heart but he also has mercy on whom he has mercy. Thank God that in his free will, he has chosen to save this multitude of sinners.
One thing that I do want to say is I, if we've affirmed God does this and yet we are completely 100% responsible, do not harden your heart. Don't leave today with a hard heart against God. Let me just read you this from Hebrews chapter 3. And this relates to Romans 9 because Romans 9 is all about the fact that, that within the nation of Israel that was externally blessed and externally saved and externally given this covenant from God that internally within the hearts of this people there were so many who rejected him and were lost to hell. And he says, don't let that be the case with you, those who are sitting in church pews. That's what Hebrews 3.12 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not harden your heart to say, we're done hearing God's word. It's time to go. We've had enough. Don't harden your heart to the word of God. If it does not bother you that your Bible would lie on the shelf day after day, and that you would not have a heart to hear it. Let that start bothering you right now. Do not harden your heart. Listen to God's Word. Submit to God's Word and see the beauty of the grace of the Gospel towards you, sinner, in God's Word. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let me just put it plainly this way. You are not guaranteed that you are among the elect because you were sitting in the pews of First Baptist Church, Matawan, or because your name is on the roll of First Baptist Church of Matawan. Please don't be among those who find out when you meet God that he will erase your name from the church roll because it was never in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Do not harden your hearts. Come to Christ. Repent. Believe. Receive the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are here today because you are God and there is no other. Lord, there is just very, very little that can possibly be thought of in the Scriptures or anywhere else that exalts you more highly over us than a passage like this. So God, I pray that you would rightly humble us as we look to your glory, as we enjoy your glorious grace Father, we thank you that you have chosen in your grace from before the foundation of the world to save this vast multitude of sinners. Lord, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to send Christ to die. Uh, you didn't have to have mercy and compassion, but it's in your very character to do it. And so we thank you for you. Lord, I pray that, Lord, that by your grace, 
that you would call each and every sinner who is here if they haven't yet been called to faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would have mercy and have compassion even today. Lord, as, as there is still this day, as there is still this opportunity, that whosoever wills may come, and God, we pray that you would change wills. And Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to praise you for your power and your justice in all things for all eternity. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.